On this episode of the Atlas Air Guns podcast, we talk to Doug, the inventor and manufacturer of the stud mag feeder, loader, and high-capacity magazine. With a background in machining, molding, and plastics, Doug now uses additive manufacturing to make his stud products, bringing innovative solutions to FX shooters. Okay, so uh, today we're here with Doug from Stud Mag Loader. His website is dlhdev.com, and his YouTube and Instagram are Stud Mag Loader. Welcome to the Atlas Airguns podcast. It's nice to be here. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. You are a manufacturer, obviously, of the Stud Mag Loader. But before we get into that, I really wanted to ask you just some fun questions. First off, who got you into airguns? First of all, I'm new to air gunning. Um, I got into air gunning after I retired and I wanted to shoot, uh, I wanted to introduce my grandchildren to firearms. I shoot uh, a lot of powder burn, powder burner uh, guns. So I wanted something I could shoot in my backyard. So I started buying, you know, the guns that you get at Walmart. Didn't know that there was these really high-end PCPs available. And one thing led to another, and I started buying FX rifles. And uh, that's currently uh, the rifles that I shoot now. What specific powder burning caliber were you kind of focused on previously? It's not previously. I still do it. I, sh- I really like 22s a lot. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a bullseye league. I, sh- I have a fine works bow. Um, FW94, I think it is. Uh, it's a 22 caliber with an aim point uh, sight on it. It's it's a nice hobby. I also shoot sporting clays on Mondays, and then I shoot a Voodoo V22 rifle, um, all 22s. Okay, and uh, here's another one. Do you shoot slugs or pellets, or do you have any preference between the two of them? The only time I ever shoot slugs is when I'm testing my products. Um, I'm not a good enough shooter to appreciate the the, uh, the quality and the accuracy that a slug can produce. Um, so I, I shoot pellets almost exclusively, again, except for when I'm testing our magazines. Uh, all of our products are designed to accept slugs because the slugs are the future. Um, but uh, I don't have any preference because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to really appreciate it. And I don't hunt, so... Um, Slugs aren't really needed for me. I only shoot out to 100 yards, too. And uh, what is your preferred gun currently that you shoot? FX. I like FX a lot. And which model? I have two of them. I have a uh, Maverick 22, and I also have a Dreamline in a 177. The Dreamline I got first, and the uh, 22 I got uh, second. So your preferred is then the Maverick? Yeah, but not for any particular reason. The 177 at 50 yards reminds me of dental drill. It's scary accurate. Uh, the 22 is nice. Uh, behind our house in Florida, I have a little 50-yard range, and it's nice because the, tw- the 22s don't get blown around as much as the 177s do. Um, that's pretty much the reason. But also, I like to have different guns so I can test um, what we sell. Are you in northern, central, or south? We have two homes. We live in upstate New York, where I am right now. We're here only for the holidays. And then we also live here in the summertime. 
and then we live in Central Florida. Uh, I'll be there the right after Christmas, and I won't come back until the grass is green up here again. Okay, well, let's uh, dive a little more into your company and what you produce. First question I have for you is, how did you get into the air gun industry, actually producing items for it, manufacturing? Uh, I'm a plastics person. I owned uh, an injection molding company and uh, a company that made melt delivery systems for injection molding. I owned that company for 30 years. Previous to that, I owned a 14 machine injection molding company. Uh, all of those companies were up here. And um, we sold uh, the plastics company in our Petrite business about three years ago. And of course, I had CNC machines, injection molding machines, and it's all I had done for 44 years. So I had a lot of, uh, and I also really enjoyed the, the technical part of it. Uh, we didn't expect to uh, sell our business. It kind of, uh, they approached us, it happened rather rapidly. And at 60 years old, um, basically, you know, all of a sudden we got a check and then they said goodbye. And um, I still had, I, you know, I filed, I filled many patents and I, uh, your brain does not know that quote unquote, it's time to retire. And I just basically couldn't do it. Um, I started shooting, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, handguns went for personal protection uh, when I owned the business. And I used to shoot a couple times a week to relieve stress. And uh, after I retired, um, it was an opportunity for me to shoot a lot more. So I started shooting, I had the V22 made custom for me. I started shooting that, really, really liked it. And then I started to understand that there was some really, really huge advances made in the air gun industry. And uh, I was extremely impressed, especially with the, uh, I saw a video with the president of FX and I realized that this was a true innovator and uh, this was a company that was gonna go a long way. And I decided that I wanted to uh, buy those guns. Uh, and I just, and I, then I saw opportunities like other people do. I saw, I saw weaknesses in the accessory part of the business that really looked like it was screaming for innovation. So the only time I ever develop a product is if I think the, that whatever I can develop would really make a difference to our cust the customer. Um, it's like, well, I, I don't make just round magazines like a lot of other people do. The only magazines that we make are high capacity magazines uh, with our chain feed system because they're extremely, extremely uh, difficult to make and they're extremely technical. Um, I don't, I don't get involved in anything just for the sake of having it. That's the same way we developed our, uh, our, uh, our system to uh, semi-automatically load pellets with our feeder system. Um, after I started shooting air guns, one of the things I really didn't like was taking an FX magazine with, I don't know, 28 rounds and loading them in one at a time with my big fat fingers. I, I just realized I like shooting, but I didn't like loading. So I developed the uh, stud feeder system that allows you to pour the pellets in and shake, which loads our loader, which loads the magazine in seconds. So that's kind of why that all happened. And let's get a little more into what you were doing previously. So your business prior to producing the stud products, what actually got you into the plastics industry to begin with? My training is I'm an injection mold builder. So um, I have a New York State certified apprenticeship in mold making. Um, so 
1976 when I graduated from high school. The next day I started at an injection mold company as an apprentice and I learned to build injection molds, which was probably the wisest, several, one of the wisest decisions I ever made in my life because uh, that allowed me to be exposed to highly technical things, problem solving, and then, uh, you know, if you just wrap it uh, through my career, uh, through our Polyshot Corporation that I, that I sold a few years ago, I was able to travel the world extensively. Uh, I was able to partner with uh, really world-class companies. And just, we were very much on the leading edge in the world of injection molding and hot runner technology. And um, so I had been around plastics for forever. And I, I, un I understand plastics. And um, I understand the mechanisms behind the, the, the really sophisticated injection molds. For instance, we used to build injection molds up to 128 cavities on a regular basis. So kind of what I'm doing now is I enjoy it, but it's relatively to what I was doing. It's, it's almost laughable, actually, but I'm having fun. How has your knowledge of plastics helped for your current product production? It's absolutely vital. Um, one of the things that it's important when you engineer a new product is to take a look at the one that's existing and see what's wrong. Uh, so, you know, of course I bought FX magazines and I would put the FX magazine in my gun and if I had, I have several magazines, some of them would cycle, some of them wouldn't. And then, you know, why don't they cycle? Well, then you start to take them apart and you realize that, you know, they're injection molded and they're made out of most likely acetal which is a material that when injection molded has got a very, very high shrink rate. And if you're molding acetal and the temperature of the mold changes by more than 10 or 15 degrees, uh, that product can actually change size by five or 10 thousandths. And after I started to understand the geometry of pellets and how they, how they moved through a magazine, I realized that the way the FX magazine is designed, it doesn't lend itself to accurate tracking and rotation of the pellet. So uh, one of the things that I've done on my 40-round uh, magazine, that entire product rides on roller bearings. So there is no slop clearances between rotating parts. They're all press fit. So understanding plastics is essential uh, to being able to produce products that live long and um, can do what the customer expects them to do. And one of the things I, I'm sure is that between pellets and slugs, that, that issue of feeding is really complicated, right? I mean, you're compounding the issue. You mean slugs being harder to feed than pellets? Well, if you're designing the, a magazine specifically around how a pellet is fed, then you introduce something like a slug. It, does it complicate that in any kind of way? It, it's actually the opposite. The uh, slugs are essentially dowel pins. If you study a slug, that they have uh, all the slugs I've ever studied, mainly FX ones, they don't have a taper to them or a difference in diameter from the outside. The problem with uh, feeding pellets is the head size is approximately three to four thousandths of an inch smaller than the skirt, which is the which is basically the uh, physics that we use to sort the pellets head down in our feeder system. Um, so the same thing happens when you're feeding, uh, uh, when you're taking a pellet and feeding it around a rotary magazine that's not extremely accurate, 
that pellet can start to cock and move at different angles. And it can move in such angles depending on how the tolerances are that that rotary part of the magazine can actually bind. Um, when we, what we did with the 40 round magazine, we understood the weaknesses with the FX magazines that it didn't really grab the pellet and carry it in a nice trajectory around the track. So when we designed, when we, I designed the uh, 40 round magazine, we actually used some special technology with our printers and we use exceedingly small nozzles that we 3D actually, we actually 3D print the chain and the fingers actually wrap around the pellet much more than a regular uh, magazine. And of course, because the slugs are straight, they just track very, very easily. They're like doll pins rolling around in there. If you can feed a pellet, you can feed a slug, assuming there's enough uh, tension in the product to drive the weight of the slugs through the magazine. I think that a lot of times people focus on the slugs. I always like to interject that at every every time I can get now because there is so much movement in that in that part of the industry. So I guess the next question I have for you is many are familiar with your products, but can you explain exactly how the stud mag loader works and how your feeder saves time and, and all that? Because I think a lot of people are probably going to be listening about this for the first time. When I started to shoot air guns, I realized that uh, magazines are expensive. And I like, and typically I want to empty my bottle. And I can shoot, with both of my guns, I can shoot about 150 rounds approximately before I start to hit the regulator. So you, you would need, I don't know, 10 magazines to do that, something like that. And um, you, know, you have to take the lids off and you have to rotate and put the pellet in. You got to put all these pellets in by hand. And so I said, there's got to be something else out there that allow me to load these magazines easier. So I went online and I found out there was, there's a lot of people that are making mag loaders. And I looked at all the mag loaders that were available. And I, and I, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the work that these pioneers have done. But when I looked at them, I, I really felt that I could make a better mag loader. So believe it or not, we shipped our first mag loader about 12 months ago from nothing. Um, right around the 15th of December, I think we made them available. And um, after we sold a few of the mag loaders, customers go, well, you know, these are really great. You know, they're better mag loaders than the other ones. But you know what would be really great is if you could figure out a way so we didn't have to load the pellets by hand. And then shortly after that, I started studying sorting devices. And of course, sorting pellets is not a new thing. Um, what is new we were the first ones to sort pellets in a predetermined location that lined up with the location of the holes in the mag loader. So what, what the customer does is there's a, you know, you have two components to our stud mag loading system. You've got the feeder and you've got the mag loaders. The feeder is basically a sorting system that you pour the pellets in and you shake it and all the pellets almost immediately, almost like magic, will go head down. And they'll, they'll actually go head down within uh, from the time you pour the pellets and you start shaking, all those will be head down within 10 seconds. <clears throat> and then you just pour off the extra pellets. And then uh, you take the lid off the mag loader and you just put it on top of the feeder and flip it upside down. Give it a tap and now you've loaded, you know, up to 28 rounds um, within seconds. Um, it's not, the beauty of the mag loading system is not the fact that it saves time. It's the fact that it saves frustration. It's really frustrating for people 
Uh, like I get emails from people that have bought our product that have arthritis in their fingers. And they're, they're so thankful that we allow them to get back in the sport again. Because a lot of these people can't manipulate the pellets. And uh, our product allows you only to load the first pellet in, the staking pellet. You rotate your magazine, drop the staking pellet in. That's the only manual loading that you do with our system. We've sold, uh, we've sold the systems. They've been all over the world. Um, and we've, we've had really good, re good feedback from the customers. I had my, I think it was my father, I showed him a little Marauder magazine and he, he's twice my age and he has, we've been in construction our whole lives and he has these fingers that have calluses and they're, they're so thick and calloused that uh, it's really hard to get like a little 22 round in a, in a magazine, a little pellet. And I definitely can see how people would appreciate that because it is one of the more frustrating aspects of the sport. And if you can remove that frustration and get to the pure pleasure of just having fun and getting some lead on vapor, that's definitely an added benefit to the shooter. Um, it is. And also what's very frustrating is when you, and this has happened to me a hundred times, is if you've got a 28 round magazine, I, in, in a, I always load at least one pellet and upside down. <clears throat> and that's happened to everybody. The nice thing about the feeder system is the feeder system does not allow a pellet to go upside down. It's physically impossible. Um, so you never have a pellet inverted inside the magazine or, or uh, the loaders or the feeders. Well, wow, that's really cool. Um, I guess the next question I have for you is you, ref you reference additive manufacturing on your website. People often say 3D printing, I think in layman's terms. What what type of printing is it that you're doing? Extrusion-based, resin, or powder? Additive manufacturing is just a more elegant word for 3D printing. Um, I use uh, filament-based technology. Okay. And why, I, I guess this is a follow-up question, manufacturers prefer the term additive manufacturing over 3D printing. Why, why is that precision and language used by manufacturers? They use it because... Like for us, we may use uh, resin-based printing. So what you can do is when you say additive manufacturing, it, it contrasts with my previous business where we're building an injection mold and we take a block of steel and we machine everything away to create a cavity. So it, there's two types of manufacturing, additive manufacturing or removal. So it's, uh, it's just a nice way, a clean way to describe it. And I also think that um, and as you talk to other people with extremely advanced uh, 3D printing equipment, uh, the word 3D printing doesn't do justice to what's running um, in the second story of my house. These machines are absolutely unbelievable how accurate they are. And, uh, you know, when you, can, when you can 3D print a line in space sideways, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Uh, most people are using FDM or FFF, that's fused uh, deposition modeling or fused filament fabrication. Is that correct? No, this, it's, it's all filament based. Basically, you start out with, uh, you know, a, a, a basically it's a monofilament line and uh, it comes on spools. So that's what that's what 99% of people do. The other thing that you reference is typically used for um, like metal and in, metal injection molding. Uh, you can actually de you can actually deposit layers of metal and fuse them with a laser beam, and then uh, when you get all done, you can shake it all out. You can have a metal product. That's the way they make uh, a lot of gun parts, actually. And you know the trigger mechanisms, things like that, are, are used with that technology.
Okay, so. But I want to I want to mention one more thing before we get off. You know, people always ask me, Doug, you know, you are a huge injection molding guy. Why don't you use injection molding? The reason that I don't use injection molding primarily has to do with the limitations. For instance, if you take, if you, you can't see this, but one of the things when you look at our, our 40 round magazine, you just, first of all, you have no idea how, it, how it's assembled because there is no fasteners, there is no latches, there's nothing. I mean, also, if you take apart an FX magazine, you always see that spring on there with the little uh, part that sticks out that has to go in the hole. When you look at our magazines, you don't see any of that. And the reason you don't see any of that is because when we manufacture the housing that the, everything fits in, we actually created a basically picture a train tunnel going on an arc. So we have areas created inside of our products to allow the spring to go sideways. So we're actually able to create uh, three-dimensional tunnels inside of our product that allow us to do amazing things. Uh, so our a drive wheel has that technology and also the, ma the magazine housing has that. And that's again why you don't see any spring or anything like that. I guess the the question I want to kind of break this apart a little bit because I am a layman on 3D printing. I've never done any of it. Uh, the spools that most people use, so that's the, you're saying that's the filament kind of fabrication that most people are doing? Correct. And do you see that that trend changing, like people using for their at home? If you're just a normal shooter and you have your little 3D printer, do you see that changing that that kind of technology that them using or adopting a new newer kind of innovation in, in the industry? Something something not no. spool. That's that's a really great solution, and it's not going away. It's very accessible. Uh, very controlled. I mean, now when you're printing at the level that 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 I am and some of these other people are, you're using you're using filaments that have tolerances that are ten times more accurate than what you can get on Amazon, for instance. I guess the same question. I, I I'm going to address this to you now in your manufacturing. I've seen when I'm doing my research, I see there's this thing called like the stereolithographic machines that for resin based. There's the selective laser sintering for powder and, and so on. Um, for you specifically for additive manufacturing machines that you have, do you see any innovation coming, that new innovation that you're going to change your machines out and do something different in the future, or is what you're using perfect for what you're doing? Actually, we're in the process of uh, replacing every single printer we have. Um, we have uh, 10 printers running. We have uh, four in Florida. I have, I have two places I manufacture out of. Florida and also whenever I'm in Florida I make there when I'm in Rochester I make them up here so we have uh, six printers here and we have four in Florida and we're half the printers have been converted over to printers that cost five times more than the other ones that we had um, specifically to answer your question the answer is yes uh, the, the coolest thing that's coming out right now is uh, multi-material uh, additive manufacturing or multi-material 3d printing so right now there's tech, there's you can buy 3d printers that have more than one color spool on it for instance and uh, some people will use a different color spool to do things like highlight the graphics on their product uh, we will be using uh, multi-material 3d printers to do the equivalent of two-shot molding in the injection molding industry for instance uh, if you take your toothbrush that you have and you look at it you're going to normally see a plastic handle with rubber 
in, you know, inserted in, into it to grip. And I think sneakers are done that way, a lot of things. 3D printers are going to be, the new ones are going to be so reliable with their ability to change colors that we'll be able to introduce not only different colors into our product, we'll be able to introduce different durometer materials. So say, for instance, we want to have uh, a, a magazine, our stud uh, loading system. Say, for instance, we want to design it so it can be used in the rain. We'll be able to produce the key parts of the product, the, the, the mechanical parts that require secondary machining out of a, a quote-unquote plastic, and we'll be able to have other parts of that product be rubber. So you'll get a better tactile feel as you screw them on. And I guess one of the things I wanted to address is obviously you, you kind of mentioned this previously, the shrinking with injection molding that happens from heat, it cools off and there's some shrinkage. Obviously you avoid that when you're doing your 3D printing. Exactly. For instance, acetal, the material that uh, any, any basically any plastic part that's used as a spring or pieces rotate within themselves are normally made out of nylon or acetal. So for the sake of this, and both the materials have about the same shrink rate. But to put it in perspective, the shrink rates on those materials when the injection molding are about 38 thousandths per inch, which is over a 30 second. So one of the beauties, believe it or not, of, of the 3D printing technology, we can actually hold, uh, when we 3D print, like our chain, we're pr and we could talk, probably should talk about the chain in that at some point because it's rather interesting. We control the diameters of the pins and the sockets within half a thousandth of an inch on that chain. And <laughs> it's pretty incredible. I think the next thing I would like to ask you specifically on this, this train is, so the, what is the type of plastic that's standard for most magazines that are injection molded again? Acetal? Most magazines are made out of uh, acetal. So acetal is very brittle, right? No, it's very tough and it's very ductile. Um, that's why they use it for springs. So if you take a, if you take an acetal part, you can actually usually bend it by 10% and you let it go, it'll kind of spring back to itself. Quite often, spring parts for plastics are made out of acetal. Okay, that's very It's also got excellent chemical resistance. It's used a lot in the um, plumbing industry too. And when you're when we're looking at stuff like, we, we are obviously as shooters aware of polymers a lot because that how strong they are in for engineering purposes. Are there a lot of let's say printers now that are producing or able to manufacture with plastics on the, the density level of a polymer? The answer is yes. When you, when you create, when I create a 3D object with our CAD system, when I, next thing you do is you actually put it into a, a slicer and it slices that product in predetermined thicknesses. And we slice all the way down to 0.1 millimeter, which is like, one-sixth the thickness of a hair. Ah, that's a bit of an exaggeration. About the thickness of a hair we produce every time we, we print. And um, you can really get some incredible accuracy with that technology. And do you see any, uh, let's say, innovations in plastics overall for additive manufacturing now that, the now that the field's kind of expanding? Is there any changes in plastics prior to the actual, the actual machine being used? Yes. Um, additive manufacturing 
is really kind of amazing. And it's what really what's interesting about it, what really applies, and I'll probably forget what the question you asked, so just circle me back when I get done with my little thing here. What what it allows you to do is like basically everything that we manufacture relative to what I was doing in the past, this is extremely low volume. This is like prototype volumes. So it's 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 very difficult to uh, like to, you know some of the molds that we used to manufacture we used to sell for five hundred thousand dollars. So like if I was to make a, a mold for uh, say the housing of our magazine, that mold would cost at least at least fifty thousand dollars. You're never going to get your money back on that investment. And the other beauty of it is is that like I could tell you one thing on that forty round magazine, that's gone through over one hundred revisions, one hundred. So picture I build an injection mold with a, with a housing and I decide I want to move the center lines three thousandths of an inch to tighten up the chain. I actually have to build some concentric device in the mold to, to cam the centers of the cores out. With the 3D printer, all I do is just go in, hit the button, and everything is parametric. I just say add three thousandths this dimension, and literally ten minutes later it's on the printer, and then several hours later it's in my hand. So it's really uh, for things like uh, parts for air guns where you're only going to sell, you know, thousands of them a year versus hundreds of thousands. It's a great thing to do. And, you know, what we do is as our volumes climbed, um, you just buy more printers. So the reason we have a lot of printers is that, you know, our printers run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They never stop. So if all of a sudden we start selling more, we just buy more printers. I can see, too, that there's probably an added benefit for additive manufacturing for molds too if you are a larger company could actually have a now nowadays you can print something out check it out be prior to making the mold if you are doing some kind of injection mold i've had a 3d printer on my desk for probably 10 years so when i when i had my uh, when i owned polyshot literally right on my desk in my office it was a 3d printer and every single thing that we ever designed um, we always banged it out because it's nice to be able to touch and feel it. But you know, the answer is right. It's invalid. No manufacturer, every manufacturer has 3D printing capabilities now. It's just, it's insane not to. So I guess the question you asked me to circle back is plastics specifically rather than additive manufacturing. Do you see plastics and how the filament is being produced? Do you see that changing as well? Like let's say so the structural integrity of it, like fusing, let's say some kind of structural infusion into the plastic. Uh, has there been any changes in, or innovations there? Yes. Um, you know, like, like I, we, we process carbon fiber filled resins, glass filled resins, all that stuff. Um, that's normally not done in a home uh, 3D printing type environment because we have heated chain, all our machines, we have the ability to run every machine with a heated chamber. So if you're gonna run anything other than very simple polylactic acid, which is basically PLA, which is what, what you would buy if you just had a, a little printer in your house, um, all of these other materials require heated chambers and they require special extruders. Like all of our, every one of our machines, as soon as we buy them, we rip the machines apart and we replace the extruders so we can run up to 350 degrees Celsius versus uh, typical uh, temperature that you would use to process PLAs. And the reason that we do that is because there's a whole series of uh, filament-based materials that are available right now that I would call engineering-grade materials. 
that aren't just to make little uh, Mickey Mouse toys for your grandkids. And how dangerous it and dangerous is it running these? When you're talking about fire hazards, is there is there any of that that comes into play for you as a manufacturer? No, the temperatures in the heated chambers, uh, it it only gets to maybe uh, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So no, there's no there's no fire there's no it's, I don't even I don't I don't see how you could set a fire doing 3D printing. Right. I saw, I did see some laser stuff and um, I just, it's a very curious about the different, the different types of uh, 3D printing, especially as a layman that's never touched one. Um, so let's talk about your 40 round magazine. Can you explain what it is and how you thought of it? And I guess how people are liking it. First of all, um, we've sold a lot of them and we've never had a return. So I guess it answers the last question. Uh, the reason um, the 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 forty round magazine to me reminds me of a, a, a Tesla uh, Model S. It's almost um, I did it for a couple reasons. One of them is we wanted a we wanted a product that when people looked at some of our other product lines, they basically go, well, this is another guy that's just producing um, uh, mag loaders and he's charging a lot of money for them. Um, we, we knew that we were different and, um, I wanted people to, I wanted to showcase product of the really, really advanced technology that, that I have at my disposal. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons that product was produced is because, um, I wanted to produce a chain that worked. Um, in, in, in order for you to put a lot of rounds in a magazine, there's two ways to do it, a circle or some other kind of geometric shape. And every magazine that you've ever seen, basically, that goes into an air gun is round. And it's round for a reason. And it's and they're limited by the diameter. So, for instance, the Impact has a much larger magazine in diameter, so it can put a lot more rounds on it. And, they, and I'm sure FX realized that when they came out with the, the other guns that hit, you only had, you know, small magazines, you can only get you know, 10, 12 rounds. I mean, I've got people asking me, people are buying guns for $5,000 and these guns can only hold like nine rounds. It's insane. Um, so people wanted uh, another another uh, opportunity to put a lot of rounds in, mainly for bench rust. That product is not designed for anything to do with the woods. It's, you know, it sticks out from the gun about four inches. It's not, it's designed for bench rust. It's designed for guys that want to, drop a whole bunch of rounds in and they want to just peel them off and that that magazine will feed as fast it'll feed much faster than you can ever cycle like I test them here and I can I can empty a 40 round magazine um, in my test stand I can empty that entire magazine in less than 10 seconds so it's pretty impressive but what I needed to do was was to manufacture a chain um, I own uh, for my, I, for my, I buy uh, air guns for my grandkids, and I bought uh, a Sig um, X5 uh, air gun that's made. Uh, I don't even know who makes it, but it's a chain feed. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And uh, when you look at the reviews on it, basically they say it's a really cool gun, but this mega, this this magazine just sucks. And there's two magazines. There's a 20 round magazine, and I think there's a 40 round magazine. I don't remember. I have both of them. Uh, but the factory magazines are just horrible. 
So I bought it and looked at it, and they, they actually use uh, die-cast parts. They actually use metal parts in combination with plastic parts, and they actually assemble. Say it's a 40-round magazine. Well, that, that magazine has got, the chain has got, you know, 80 parts to it that get linked together. Um, I realized that if I was going to be able to do what I want to do in the future, I had to figure out a way to convey pellets in a way other than circular. So I, I didn't design the 40-round magazine for economic reasons. I designed it for technical reasons. And believe it or not, that chain took, from the time I started developing that chain, till it was totally functional, where it wouldn't break, and it was absolutely repeatable, it took three months. Three oh, months. That is a And probably, probably two to three hundred revision levels. Um, and the beauty of that chain is that chain is completely produced on a 3D printer. And when it's produced, it produces all the links. The links are linked together. And in between, all the clearances are done. So literally, when that, when that chain comes off the printer, I just give it a shake. And that entire thing becomes alive. And it can it can be loaded into our magazine. Wow, that's really impressive. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask is, I guess, I guess on that on that train of the the link, what what made you think of that? Because if the listener is listening, and most people are familiar, let's say with a Marauder type magazine, where you have this center that is a solid gear, uh, you know, on a bearing or it's on a spring, and it's it's free floating inside that other plastic shell how did you think of this chain mechanism versus the what everyone else has done since the time immemorial i did it because i wanted to get more rounds so when you have like the first one that we've designed is for the uh for the uh, impact excuse me the uh, fx uh dreamline maverick which is a smaller they call it the mega magazine m-a-g-a so that's limited to a diameter of maybe two and a half inches something like that well, the only way you're going to get more pellets in that rifle is if that magazine has got more, more linear length on it. So the reason that we designed it with a chain is that gave us a lot more places to put pellets. So, I mean, theoretically, I could make that, I could make that thing a foot long and I could put 300 pellets in one magazine. There's no limit to it. The only limit is, is how obnoxious that you want it to look. Right. So the length of the, the other thing is, too, I thought to myself, uh, I think we sell these as magazines for $120. I go, well, why would I want to spend $120 in a magazine unless it had at least double of what the factory magazines do? So uh, when I designed the center lines of that product, um, I determined that I needed at least double the rounds to, just to make it uh, a good value for the customer. The other thing that um, is interesting about that is you, this drive system that I told you about. Typically, with a, a regular magazine like you described, the drive system is in the primary wheel. So basically, every magazine that's ever existed, the, the spring is inside the part that's right near the breech, right? It isn't with this other magazine. Because we decide that we need this really accurate tracking device in the magazine, we could not get away with uh, out using roller bearings. So we have two roller bearings, a, a small roller bearing on the, on the area that goes inside the breech and a very large roller bearing that goes inside that actually hangs out in the air. And the reason, one of the reasons that the that magazine on the right-hand side is so big, we needed room for the, the, the bearing, 
but inside the bearing is the entire spring wound mechanism and that spring uh, was so difficult to source uh, I actually manufacture every one of these springs I have a machine shop here uh, in Rochester too so we actually I actually wind every one of those springs to my own wire diameter to my own tension to my own diameters because the springs to go inside that magazine don't exist on the face of the earth wow that's super impressive and when you're talking about this this chain feed i i have i have studied it a little bit on uh, i believe there's a couple threads that i read is would there be any added benefit of using that chain in a standard sized magazine would it would it at all make it, it no it basically turns into what i've got you know, it, it, there's no reason, you mean a chain instead of a wheel? No, a, 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 that would just, you know, if I take the chain and put it in a, in a circular fashion, it just becomes a wheel. Right. So there's no, the, the magic of that, of this magazine is not only that it's got a lot of rounds. And you'll, if you start to look at uh, reviews on the internet, the first thing they're going to talk about is how smooth it is. Uh, the, we not, when we buy the bearings, we actually take the bearings and we modify the bearings to give them a lower breakaway force. Breakaway force means when you take a bearing and you hold the inside and you spin the outside, there's a certain amount of force that's required to spin that. Because the tension, because the pressures, if you have too strong of a magazine in here, I could put a mag, I could put a spring in this thing so strong that every time it advanced, it actually would take the, the pellet and crush it. So you have to design the, the spring pressure in such a way <clears throat> that it, it's got enough force so you've got 40 rounds in there you as soon as you cycle one pellet you're asking 40 pieces of lead that are all stopped to go from zero to 100 miles an hour for for 40 millimeters in a tenth of a second so in order to get that kind of velocity you have to modify the bearings to allow them to move very very easily there's a there's a there's an immense amount of technology that goes into that magazine that and I, you know, pe people look at it and they go, well, that's cool. Or they go, it's obnoxious. But um, it's pretty freaking wild, technically, of what happens inside. And most people don't care about it or don't understand it. And that's okay. The goal of beautiful technologies like your iPhone, where you have, I have no idea how the thing works, but it just works perfect. And that's the goal for every product that I produce. I want it to be beautiful. I want it to work fantastic. And I want the customer not to give a rat's ass about um how it's made yeah i don't i don't have an fx but when i looked at it i was like i was actually thinking not for bench rest for but for pesting if you're in one spot where you have a lot of pests that you want to take out let's say ground squirrels i could actually see using that and posting up and being able to take a lot of shots without switching out a magazine i could i could see a, a 40 round magazine coming into play if you're if you're taking out a lot of pigeons or anything like that. I know that a lot of the South African guys, they shoot a lot of pigeons in one sitting. So I could see a, a 40 round magazine coming into play pretty well there. I, I'm going to guess 20% uh, of our sales are to the pest control people, especially this magazine. Yeah, you're exactly right. They want to, they want to get their eye on that and they want to just keep, they just want to keep driving pellets into that, whatever they're shooting at. So it's really designed for bench rest and it's designed for pest control. Uh, People do use it for hunting, um, but it's again, it's 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 not the the physics of it. It needs to stick out in order to have room for all these rounds. Just like 
you know, uh, you know, a belt thread magazine is nothing new. They've been around for hundreds of years, and that's how they. That's how they. Basically, I just designed a mechanism that the same way they feed machine guns, I just did it in an enclosed environment, instead of having a, you know, a big chain hanging all over the ground and coming out of a box. Which, you, by the way, we could do that too. Do you see yourself getting into producing any of these products for any other companies or any other guns? I am being stalked by people begging us to produce them for other guns. Here's the problem is that I'm an FX guy. Um, I just am. You know what I mean? I just I believe in the owner of the company. I believe in the product. And there's a lot of other guns that are just great. Um, the other the other problem I have is, you know, our products are, you know, are high end and they're, you know, uh, and they're also every single thing we make. Uh, we don't 3D print them and put them in a box. One thing I didn't mention is every single thing we make is machined after, almost without exception. So basically 3D printing is the base that we use to get uh, almost like a cylinder uh, casting when you're building an engine. And then we go back and secondarily machine them. That's how we get the accuracies that we have. So, um, yes, but the problem with it is, is, you know, I have people asking me to produce magazines, 40-round magazines for air guns that cost $500. I ask myself, why would somebody spend $120 on a magazine for a $500 gun? I just don't see it. Um, and our product is never going to be, <laughs> we're never going to sell a $50 magazine, ever. It's never going to happen. It can't. It's physically impossible. You know, you can't put roller bearings and custom-made springs and, and secondary machining on a, on a product like that and sell it for 50 bucks. So um, I'm looking at, um, I'm getting a lot of pressure to produce high-capacity magazines for day states. And um, I'm actually trying to acquire a day state Delta Wolf magazine. They're really hard to come by in 22 because that's kind of on my list for development. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting. I'll try to tag Day State and maybe get their attention on this. Um, I really like Day State. I don't have one, just like a just like FX. I I have a, I'm mostly hunting guns. I think I have about five now, and they're all unregulated and hunting. I've I've shot Day States and shot FX, so I appreciate both. But yeah, definitely, I'll, I can see the market there for a Day State because they they are excellent rifles and. Man, they're beautiful. I, I also see uh, why you'd stick with FX. They one thing I really appreciate about FX is the fact that they, as a company, they do bring on really good, other other good products like a Sumo or whatever. They they will adopt that onto their platform, and if they see something working well, instead of instead of manufacturing a copy of it, they actually adopt that into their platforms. That's one thing I really think that's cool about the company overall. So segueing here. Uh, do you see any trends changing for air guns or air gun manufacturers? I'm new to the air gun industry, but I've only, you know, you know, I picked up an air gun when I was a kid. I picked up another one when I was about 30 years old. And then uh, really, uh, I didn't start buying air guns in earnest till two years ago. So I'm really not qualified to answer any questions about, I, I'm, I know enough to be dangerous. So I, I have nothing uh, intelligent to, to comment on. And do you see, since you're now producing uh, magazines, do you see ma magazine depth needing to be changed at all? Or do you think it, do you feel like from your level of shooting right now, do you feel like it's where it should be? Or do you, do you see maybe mag magazine depth growing in the future? Um, 
we were smart enough that every single thing that we've ever engineered, we've designed it for the maximum length pellet that will fit inside the breech of, a, of an FX gun. And as a matter of fact, um, we actually add like 10% to them. So if you, if you take, a, if you take a, a magazine apart in an FX and you measure the maximum length of the pellet, we've actually added about a 30 second to that. Um, so if it'll fit in the gun, every single thing we sell will fit a slug. Wow. So that's impressive. I, I think well, it has to, it has to be that way because, uh, that way you don't, that way you don't design obsolescence into the product. Right. Uh, so do you hunt or anything like that? I just wanted to ask that. I don't. When you have a gun like a Voodoo V22, it's really not fair. Yeah. So do you, uh, you plink and, and you compete? 90, I don't compete. I, I really, I really am not a very good shooter. To be honest with you, I probably shoot, uh, I shoot hundreds of rounds a week. And most of those rounds consist of when I'm in Rochester, literally I'm in my office right now and I'm, I'll open up the window and I'll put my FX rifle on my windowsill and I will empty a, 50, a 40 round mag at a target in my backyard in about uh, 60 seconds. <laughs> And then I'll load up the next magazine. Basically, 90% of my shooting is testing product. Uh, and then uh, in our house in Florida, we've got, uh, uh, we live in a resort down there, and we've got, a, we've got some uh, HOA-owned land behind us, and uh, I set up targets back there. So uh, that's, you know, when, when our grandkids come to Florida and when our friends come over, you know, the, the, the entertainment I offer is uh, I'll let you shoot as many uh, rounds as you want. Um, because every single product we manufacture, we actually test. So if we're going to sell a mag loader and a feeder, we actually take, we buy, you know, pellets and we put them in the mag loaders and we, and we feed them and we put them in every single thing that we sell has got, has actually functioned. We don't just put stuff in a box. As a result, I go through thousands of rounds of pellets a month and, uh, those pellets become the ones that I actually shoot. So... Are there, oh, I mean, this is kind of beyond your your purview, let's say, but are there any manufacturing processes for the, the pellets themselves or let's say the process even of putting them in the tin that you would like to see changed? Because I know, for example, when I receive some high-end uh, high pellets sometimes, the skirts are damaged or anything like that. Do you see any anything there that could be improved? I've actually messed around with um, tracer pellets. For instance, we've had some of the pest control guys that like to film. They've asked me to create uh, technology, and we've actually created um, uh, inserts that are 3D printed that are um, glow in the dark that we can load in the back of a pellet. I never introduce them because I, I don't like them very much. But uh, the only way you're going to get pellets to not have skirts to form is if they're made out of another material. And the problem with that is they can easily make a pellet out of a material that's much more durable. But that, that skirt has to, con has to conform to the uh, spiral in the barrel, has to do a lot of things. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, I have, I have the ability here to measure, I have a $6,000 microscope that I use to measure pellets that can measure them with a tenth of a thousandth of an inch. And I can tell you from measuring lots and lots of pellets that, you know, you can buy the best pellets in the world and they're all over the map. I mean, they just are. I mean, they're not what you think they are. You're basically, every time you put that thing 
and you slam it into the back of that that gun, you're basically forming that skirt to what the diameter is. And I've had people tell me, well, I, you know, I don't really feel comfortable pouring the pellets in the feeder because you kind of have to, you know, manipulate it to get them in the holes. But if you could look at the pellets under microscopes that come right out of the tins, they look like they've been made with a tomahawk in a lot of cases. Right. So that objection that people have that there might be damage or that this the small the small damage that might happen from the, even the processing and putting them in the tin you're you're essentially saying all oh, that just that objection doesn't actually come into play because the skirt is expanding it doesn't anyway. it doesn't you know i'm i'm new to facebook and it's i've never touched facebook in my life until i started stud magloader and um it's fascinating like we'll introduce a product and we'll spend hundreds of hours on it and by the way we didn't Lori and I didn't start Stud Magloader for commercial reasons. We studied it because we really felt we could give something really, really cool to people. And we'll probably never make money on Stud Magloaders ever. Uh, you know, we like we just built a new uh, in Florida. We we bought uh, we bought the land across the street from us, and we built another shop just to make Stud Magloaders. I built a, a 1,600 square foot structure that's. Uh, it's a guest house, and there's a big shop, and it looks like uh, it looks like NASA. And I can tell you one thing: I will never sell. <laughs> Enough sudden megalos to ever pay for that, but um, it, we really like it. We think it's we think it's cool and it's fun, and uh, the Lord bless us with a few extra resources. So, uh, you know, we're we're happy to make a small contribution in the industry. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, just very interesting talking to you because I think nowadays, especially the people are, I guess I I should say people are very anti-business and anti-manufacturing. There's just this common. I don't know ideology now that's out there in the the stratosphere where people are against businesses and it's amazing when you talk to a businessman such as yourself or a manufacturer or innovator entrepreneur how much work they put into something and what what that means when it comes to the market and just the significance of that so i really appreciate uh just all your descriptions so before we go and before we close here i'd really like to ask you is there any misconceptions you see in the market or specifically in your field misconceptions that hasn't been addressed before what do you mean by misconceptions just... uh let's say with plastics uh the strength of plastic yeah, I think um, that's one of the reasons I don't like to use the word 3D printing because 3D print, when you think about 3D printing, you think about, you know, the 3D printers that existed. I remember buying 3D printers for $3,500 five years ago that I couldn't, that, that just were horrible. You know, the parts would peel off and um, additive manufacturing is, injection molding is never going, I mean, think, of, think about my position. We're in a position to build injection molds for everything. We know injection molders all over the world. We can get them made in China, U.S. We know everybody. Um, and we don't use it. We, and the reason we don't use it is because for low volume, high, high, high quality, additive manufacturing is absolutely scary accurate. And, uh, you know, the reason, like, but the thing is, if I was going to make a simple magazine, like an FX magazine, those are called an open and shut mold, which means there's no mechanical actions. When the mold opens up, the part drops out and, and the mold closes. There's no side angle slides. There's no collapsible cores. There's no sophisticated action. What we're able to do with additive manufacturing, we're able to basically produce a part that would like like that like the the magazine housing that I described several times, 
that mold may cost $125,000 if I want to include the internal rotating devices to retain the spring. So I'm able, you're able to actually bring a product to market with, ex, with basically no limitations technically. And um, the other thing is surface finishes. I mean, we actually run our printers really, really slow. Um, again, we're not financially motivated. So we really don't care. To be honest with you, like when we're printing, uh, we're printing that chain, that chain takes four hours and eight minutes to produce for one of them. One chain. So, and the housing for the magazine takes three and a half hours. So, why would somebody slow their machines down that so much? I mean, when you take a look at uh, some of the high-end additive manufacturing suppliers in the air gun industry, when you take a look at those parts, they're freaking impressive. Uh, the surface finishes, the side finishes, the way that we can put um, that we, we can put graphics in now. It's really, really, it's really, uh, really advanced, and it. Um, yes, yeah, so I don't like to use the word 3D printing, just because it it, it doesn't leave a, a real great feeling in some people's minds. I think. So I'll I'll readdress the question. So for additive manufacturing, then, do you see any misconceptions that you see generally with the public? How what what they think of? I don't think people understand it, frankly. Right. I just think I think that. Uh, it's like when you look at the dashboard of your car, you have no concept of how that's manufactured. I don't think people really care. I think people, it's funny, when I, when I talk about these Facebook groups, there was one comment that came from, by the way, any comment I've gotten negative never came from a customer. It usually came from somebody that's either a potential competitor of ours or somebody that, I don't know, that just wants to not be nice. They'll say, why would I pay, uh, you know, $120 for four mag loaders and a feeder? Uh, they just, and it's 3D printed. Um, it, it, actually, what you're going to find is that 3D printed parts in lower volumes, you can produce them at much higher qualities than you can with uh, an injection molded part. And I don't think people are ever going to, I don't, I don't know if they're ever going to understand that. So and you I really don't know. You said that you do machining on top of that. Can you briefly describe you, what that looks like? Let's say with your mag feeder. What you find out is when you're, when you, when you're producing, uh, say for instance, when you're producing a feeder. So the tolerance on this, from this, we understand, we also understand with the microscope they have, we, we also measure lots of pellets. So we understand the manufacturing tolerances you know, we don't ask them what they are because they're not going to tell us. We actually measure like a whole bunch of pellets and we create charts and we understand what the diameters of the, of the head and the skirt of the pellets are. And once you understand what the head and skirts of the pellet are, and if I want every single pellet to fall in a hole, but I never want the skirt to fall in the hole, that gives me a tolerance that's required. And that tolerance that's required in those holes, 3D printers are not capable of. So, for instance, uh, every time we manufacture a feeder, which is the thing that we use to sort the pellets, every single one of those holes goes through a secondary operation in a machining center. And we remachine every single one of those holes to a, a, a tolerance that's an order of magnitude higher than what the 3D printer could produce. And I'm going to guess 70% of our products, anytime we think we can't get the 3D printer to do what we want it to do, it immediately goes into uh, a machining center. Like I just uh, we just, Lori and I just acquired a machining center for Florida. Um, there's a brand new one sitting down there that I haven't even turned on yet. Um, 
right now that's done on, uh, we have lathe in the mill here in Rochester, so right now it's done on manual machines and that'll be done on CNC's, uh, you know, during the winter we'll convert over to that. So I think the very first CNC machine I ever touched was in 1974. So um, and when I had PolyShot, we had um, rows of uh, high-end machining centers to, to, to produce our injection molds. And so when it comes to CAD software, and I think it's CAM, is it CAM is the other one? Do you, yes. Are, you've been using that for years then as well? Yes, yes. I use, right now I use Fusion 360. Uh, it's a subscription-based uh, product, and it's uh, full three-dimensional three, three and parametric, which means I can draw a circle, I can draw a whole product, and if I want to change a diameter, I can just go in and edit one feature, and I can change everything on it. I uh, I briefly looked at some of the software for this podcast, researching it, and it kind of was familiar with me a little bit because I used Maya. I don't know if you're familiar with that program. I am but not. Yeah, it's a uh, three-dimensional, it's just 3D modeling, like if you're doing mm -hmm. a, a movie or anything like that. It, it has the X and Y axis. It's a lot of the same things, but obviously on artistic, the artistic side right. rather than the engineering side. So it's... As you know, those softwares are very complicated. If you just wanted to pick one up and actually get probably to your level, I'm sure it takes a decade or more. I'm not that good at it, believe it or not. Uh, until I retired, um, I had engineers. So whenever I wanted something done, I would sit there with a piece of paper and I'd sketch it up in my office and I would, ha I would hand it to one of the kids in engineering and they would draw it for me. I had to learn how to use uh, the software after I retired. And I can tell you, it hasn't been a pretty experience. Uh, so you said this is easy stuff for you. What do you do to challenge yourself? Basically, when you uh, when you invent, it's almost uh, I'm almost not proud of it. I haven't slept um, I haven't slept a normal night's sleep in probably thirty years. Typically, the way it is is I'll go to sleep at night. Or, uh, I, I basically can't stop thinking ever, um, ever. I could be at church and my mind will start engineering a spring design or I could be basically I'm never in person ever a hundred percent it's it's almost a disease uh, I wake up at two in the morning and typically I'll start to work on new product designs from two to four in the morning and then fall back asleep at four and then wake up again at seven and uh, it's really uh, I really don't understand it but certain people don't function like other people and unfortunately I'm one of those people I don't I don't I don't have a normal I don't have a normal life I think my my dad's into real estate so he's kind of on that same line but with real estate rather than manufacturing so it's always it's always fun to hear that um, I guess lastly do you have any new products that you're kind of developing right now or that people should look forward to I do I'm working on something that I think is really really cool um, one of the one of the reasons that people use um, mag loaders is that they you have to, when you when you if you take a regular mag loader you have to put the pellet in skirt first. That's because when you take that and flip it on top of the magazine, it has to go down head first in an FX magazine. So the holy grail has been: can you load a magazine without a loader? Okay, and when people when people saw our sorters, it was kind of like, and, and this really came up with our uh, our new forty round magazine. She goes, Doug, you made this really cool magazine, and everybody knows that you think 
loading magazine sucks, but you just made a magazine that takes twice as long to load as anybody else, and you don't have a, 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 a way to feed it. Um, we've engineered uh, a new feeding system that the patent will be filed probably within two weeks that allows us to directly load an FX magazine with no loading system. So basically picture, put, put this device on top of, take the lid off an FX magazine, put, put our product on top of it, pour the pellets in, shake it, and then magically the holes that sort the pellets change diameters and all those pellets fall in the magazine you put the lid on. So uh, that is sitting actually in my hand right now. It works beautifully. And the only thing we're doing right now is refining it for uh, manufacturability. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say, too, is that, um, you know, there are other guns that I was, I've been thinking during this podcast, like the, I think it's the LCS as aluminum magazine, but I, I think there are other magazines maybe that are high end, too, that you could actually use your feeder loader system for that people would spend that money. I mean, the LC, I think it's the LCS is around 2,500 bucks. It's the automatic uh, gun, but I'm not too familiar with the product, but I'll just think it off the top of my head. The problem we have is once we started manufacturing for uh, FX guns, we haven't, like the, the 40 round magazines, we've only created them in 22 and 177 for the Dreamline Maverick product line. We have no 40 round magazines for the uh, impact line. So we have got a lot of work to do just to finish. I, I try to start something and finish it. So basically, in, before I really move on to another manufacturer, I really want to complete the entire FX line so there's no holes missing in our product line. Because I, I literally get emails several times a week where, oh, I wanted to buy this and you didn't have it in this capacity. Right. And so, I, and you've already have that market there and people are going to be familiar with your product in that in that product line, the FX line. So I'm sure that uh, you'd want to fill that out with the 25 cal and so on. We've made a lot of promises and at some point I have to fulfill them. Um, the problem that we have is going to uh, when we designed the magazine, the center lines used will only accept a 177 and 22 pellet. So picture the, all the engineering that went into the chain I just described to you. If we make any magazine with any round bigger than 22, we've got to re-engineer the entire chain, oh my which gosh. is a real pain in the rear. Yeah, and I I'm not imagine. looking forward to it. So uh, that's the next thing we have to take care of. Wow. Okay. Well, Doug, it was a real pleasure uh, to have you on today on the Atlas Air Guns podcast. And I just uh, thank you for coming on. There's really a lot of explanation, a lot of technical stuff, and I really appreciate it and learned a lot. And I'm going to use this information and go on and research a lot about additive manufacturing. It's my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience today. Okay, and people can find Doug and the Stud Mag Loader and his offerings at dlhdev.com and on his YouTube and Instagram account under the Stud mag loader name and uh, it was a pleasure having you on and thanks so much thanks for listening to another episode of the atlas air guns podcast make sure to like with a five-star rating share and subscribe have a question 
email atlasairguns at gmail.com.